the grace that comes from seeing Christ for who he truly is, a savior who has made a payment for sin, the grace that comes and is ministered to your heart through the truth of the gospel is the means by which you obey the commands of scripture. This is Beholding Christ, and I'm Matt Williams, your host. Welcome to part one of The Beatitudes, Flourishing in Christ's Kingdom, taken from the New Testament Gospel of Matthew by Pastor Paul Twiss. Today, program sponsor Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks is relaunching this program with a new name, Beholding Christ, replacing Timeless Truth Today, having been on the air for over six years. And even though our name has changed, Pastor Paul's Bible-based expository teaching has not changed, nor has our desire to touch souls with the redemptive power of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, Pastor Paul begins a month-long series from Christ's first public teaching in the New Testament, known through history as the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Paul's text today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which he has subtitled, Ascending the Mountain, Anticipating the Kingdom. Mountains have a special meaning in Scripture, and he makes important observations about mountains in this teaching, like this. God was often pleased to use mountains as a signal of movement forward in redemptive history. Here's part one of The Beatitudes, Flourishing in Christ's Kingdom. Whenever you come to any text, the first question that you need to ask as part of your interpretation is simply what is the text? Before you're able to read the text so as to interpret it and establish the meaning, the very first question you need to ask is, what is the text? In part, this is a question of delineation. Where does my text begin and where does my text end? It's a question of where is the unit of thought? When we come to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that question of delineation is perhaps harder than you might think. Consider, for example, simply the observation that this is one sermon. Jesus preached these three chapters in one sitting. And so, therefore, there is a sense in which five, six, and seven are the thought. There is validity in approaching this text, preaching it here as one sermon. I don't intend to do that today beyond the holistic thought. The individual ideas are somewhat self-evident, but again, there are points where we run into difficulty. Think about the Beatitudes. Should we take these to be one single unit of thought? Should that be the text? Or should we divide them down into individual beatitudes, each one being its own theological statement? And if not individuals, then what? Would it be pairs or maybe three at a time? 
These are issues that you have to wrestle through. Whenever you come to read and interpret a text, the first question you need to ask is, what is the text? What is the unit of thought? When you approach the Sermon on the Mount with that question in mind, what you realize somewhat surprisingly is that the very first unit of thought in this entire sermon is verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 that we might pass off as incidental details, in fact, encapsulate the very first unit of thought. Matthew is not simply telling us what Jesus did just so that it might be a nice-to-have piece of information. He is giving us, in verses 1 and 2, theological truth. Now, maybe that is surprising to you, unless... You've been tracking with Matthew thus far, and you've seen his proclivity towards Old Testament theology. If you've been with us through this series, you'll know almost every single week we find cause to refer to an Old Testament text that either Matthew quotes verbatim or he alludes to. Matthew was writing originally for a primarily Jewish audience, and so he was not fearful to go back to the Old Testament scriptures so as to prove to them that Jesus was the long-awaited-for Messiah. And so he always draws on Old Testament theology so as to make his point, it would seem, and verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 are no exception. Specifically, what Matthew is doing here is he is leaning on tapping into, borrowing from a theme that is prevalent throughout the Old Testament scriptures, one that centers on the mountain. Summarized, that theme in the Old Testament is one wherein we see that God was often pleased to use mountains so as to signal a movement forward in redemptive history. Many times in the Old Testament scriptures, God chose the mountain as a point of revelation in order to signal that he is moving redemptive history forward to its culmination of people dwelling with him once again. So it is not incidental when Matthew notes for us that Jesus went up the mountain. He is intending to communicate theological truth to us. Specifically, Matthew is including this detail so as to flag, so as to anticipate, so as to signal the coming kingdom. Jesus went up onto the mountain, and with that statement, Matthew is making known to us that this sermon and this man and all that is to follow is in some way anticipatory of the coming kingdom. And as we think about that coming kingdom this morning, we will learn more of the teacher, that is Christ. We will learn more of his teaching, that is the sermon. And we will learn more of those being taught, that is his disciples, namely us. So what I want to do this morning is just look at these two verses from a number of different angles to understand more fully how it is that these details are theologically significant, signaling the coming kingdom, and in so doing, learn more of Christ 
and his teaching and his disciples in the hope that our love for him would increase. Our understanding of his teaching would increase and our faithfulness as his disciples would increase. Beginning then with the teacher. From these two verses, what is it specifically that we learn about Jesus? We affirm, as we've already rehearsed this morning in song and in prayer, we affirm that all of Scripture is God-breathed. This is the only book in the history of the universe that is inspired. Every single word has been given by God. For that reason, we proclaim that it is inerrant, without mistake. We also affirm that it is sufficient. God's word is sufficient for us to live lives that honor him. It is also to be authoritative. These are the doctrines of bibliology. This is what we believe about the Bible. When Matthew records these details of Jesus ascending the mountain, these are inspired words. They are not to be glossed over. He is recording for us and impressing upon us a theology. Now, I want to be very clear. I don't deny that Matthew is recording history, historical reality. He is telling us what Jesus did and where he went. And at the same time, I don't want to deny that, in part, Jesus most likely went up onto a hill so as to teach in order to be able to project further. These things are practical realities. But you always need to consider the fact that the authors of Scripture had options. The Holy Spirit is carrying them along to record the words that they write down. They have options. There are many things that are historical realities concerning this moment in Jesus' ministry that Matthew did not record. Matthew did not tell us what Jesus was wearing that day. He never tells us what color Jesus' eyes are. He didn't tell us what Jesus ate for breakfast that morning. We could go on. There are thousands of details that Matthew neglects to tell us. One of the details that he does tell us is that Jesus went up onto a mountain. And so, at the very least, we need to consider if that would be theologically instructive for us as it sets the context for the next three chapters of teaching. And the answer is yes. There are many mountains in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most prominent one is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. And as you know, it was Moses who went up to Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. And the very first thing that Matthew seems to be doing in verse 1 of chapter 5 is to forge a connection between this man, Jesus Christ, and Moses. Matthew wants us to understand Jesus in the likeness of Moses. The reason why it's likely that that's what Matthew is doing is twofold. First of all, those words, he went up on the mountain, are also found in the Old Testament only three times. In the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, they're only found three times, all in the book of Exodus. Chapter 19 and 24 and 34, referring to Moses, exactly the same words, 
Moses went up to the mountain. Matthew seems to be forging this this connection between Jesus and Moses by virtue of the words that he chooses. Additionally, another reason why we understand that that's what Matthew is doing is because thus far in the four chapters that we have covered, you'll remember that the Moses allusions have been strong. They've been prominent. They've been consistent. It seems on a number of weeks as we've worked through the prologue, there has been very clear allusions back to the life of Moses. Chapter 2 is a particularly pertinent example. As Herod sought to kill this infant, and he killed all of the infants at that time, and Jesus with his parents fled to Egypt. The text is saturated with allusions going back to Moses and the days of Pharaoh. So because this is what Matthew has been doing thus far, it seems reasonable to conclude that in chapter 5, verse 1, when he writes the words, he went up on the mountain, he is impressing upon us again that Moses correspondence. Now that's actually the easy part. The difficulty is understanding why. It's relatively easy to see the connection The difficulty is understanding why would Matthew be concerned to do this. The answer comes by thinking about Moses and his giving of the law from Sinai. It is critically important to remember, when Moses went up onto the mountain and received a law to give to the people, He did it to a people that had already experienced the saving love of the Lord. He did not give the law to the people while they were in Egypt as a means of soliciting God's saving grace toward them. That is not where the law comes in Moses' ministry or in the life of ancient Israel. Long before Moses was a teacher, he was a redeemer. Moses had been chosen by God. He raised him up to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. And through Moses, God worked so as to open up the waters and bring his people out of bondage. They were a saved people in the sense of being physically redeemed from slavery. They had already experienced the saving love of the law. I wonder if you notice in the reading of the Ten Commandments this morning how it begins. I am the Lord your God who saved you out of Egypt. That is the first note that is sounded before any imperative is given. And thus it is critically important as this correspondence is forged between Jesus and Moses that we understand long before Moses was a teacher, he was a redeemer. It is exactly the same with Christ. Before he gives these commands, he has shown himself to be a sufficient savior. Just a few weeks prior, we thought about the effectual call of those fishermen. He utterly transformed their hearts with a word. He saved them. He did not give to them a law to obey prior to that effectual call. He is a savior before he is a teacher. 
Now, a few weeks prior, as we thought about that reality, I said to you, if you should ever hear an exhortation to follow Jesus' instruction, apart from understanding him first to be a savior, that is the most deadly sermon you would ever hear. If you are ever exhorted to heed the teachings of Christ without first and foremost understanding that he comes to save, that sermon will be to you condemnation. The teachings of Christ will only condemn you if you have not first found him to be a savior. And you need to be honest with yourself and decide whether you have bypassed Jesus as a savior and only ever found him to be a good teacher. Only you can answer that question. Have you taken him in to be someone who has made a payment for your sin? If you have not, there is no eternal value in following his good and right teaching. But that principle applies for Christians also. Christians are those that have found Christ to be a savior, who have acknowledged that they have a debt of sin that they cannot pay before a holy God, that they can do nothing to make themselves right with their creator, but they found in Jesus someone who has done everything. A Christian is someone who has put their faith in Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection as a sufficient payment for their sin. A Christian needs to be someone who is doing that each and every day. Because the grace that comes from seeing Jesus as a savior is the grace that enables you to obey his commands. Let me say that again. It is critically important for you, un- you to understand the grace that comes from seeing Christ for who he truly is a savior who has made a payment for sin, the grace that comes and is ministered to your heart through the truth of the gospel is the means by which you obey the commands of scripture. I have found so often that Christians are pretty good at understanding the need and the place of God's grace as it relates to their justification. Christians can normally articulate their need for grace as it relates to their right standing with God. And in the same breath, they have not understood very well at all the need for God's grace in their perseverance. All too often, the reality of the Christian's existence is that they have made an appeal to Christ at the point of salvation. They have received the free gift of eternal life, of sins forgiven, of right standing before God. They see and understand their need for his grace that comes through the gospel of Christ in that moment. And then they set off on the race towards the finish line. And as they do so, they leave Christ the Savior behind. 
and they wake up and with good intentions, they strive every day to obey the commands of Scripture, but they are doing it in their own strength, apart from a manifestation of the grace of the gospel afresh in their hearts. Jesus, long before he was a teacher, was a redeemer, and he needs to be a redeemer to you every single day. You cannot afford to lose sight of the glory of Christ as a savior every single day. If you do the commands that he issues to you, which are good and right and for your flourishing, will become to you a burden. This is why so many Christians are walking the Christian walk. And externally, it looks like they're living a life of obedience, and yet they lack all joy. Because they are not fueled by God's grace on a daily basis. They know and they understand what is expected of them as disciples of the Lord Jesus. But because they are not taking in Christ as a Savior, the commands are now heavy on their soul. This is why so many Christians are walking what it seems to be a steadfast path of obedience, and yet they lack all zeal for the things of the Lord. They lack all zeal for the work of the ministry. They lack all zeal to race towards the commands of Scripture because they are walking without a manifestation each and every day of God's grace as it is found in the gospel. You can never get beyond the gospel. If you have been walking with Jesus for two weeks or two months or two years or 20 years, you need to feast upon the gospel. Your utmost priority every single morning needs to be to rise up, to open this book, and to see Christ. You have to find Christ and behold his glory as the one that has made a payment for your sin. And I would encourage you, Lord, pray. Pray to God that he would refresh your heart this morning with the truth of the gospel. Because in reality, we are so fickle towards eternally significant truth. We are so easily distracted by the cares of the world. And I don't hold it against you that you would say in all honesty, I just struggle in the morning and with all that is going on and with all the trials that God has given to me, I struggle to get excited about Christ. So pray God, would you enliven my heart afresh this morning to see the beauty of my Savior, that he has made a payment for my sin, that I am innocent before you, clothed with his righteousness, that your love is set upon me and I'm destined for eternity because of his life. You're listening to Beholding Christ. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 may seem like a minor part of Christ's sermon, which covers chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel. Following Matthew's brief setup in verses 1 and 2, Christ will begin the Beatitudes at verse 3. These are a series of pronouncements of blessing on those flourishing with Christ in His kingdom. To start with, Pastor Paul focuses on verses 1 and 2 about the place, the mountain, and to whom Jesus is speaking. 
And as you've heard, mountaintop experiences have a special focus in God's Word. If you'd like to learn more about following Christ, come to our website, beholdingchrist.org, beholdingchrist.org. Then press Contact Us on the homepage where we can connect you with the caring people at Bethany Bible Church. Beholding Christ is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Well, on our website, would you consider giving a contribution to be part of this radio ministry to continue to reach out to hungry souls with the good news of Jesus? Simply click Donate on our homepage. Hope you'll join us tomorrow as we continue our new series with part two of The Beatitudes on flourishing as members of Christ's kingdom. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.